Okay, Shavua Tov, everyone, as we continue uh, with the Sefer Oros Bamuchama, the Lights of War, and we're on Chapter 5. But again, we'll just do a quick review of the last week's chapter, just for a, a minute, um, so we put ourselves back in the right spot and give people who are late a chance to come. So we said, if not for the sin of the golden calf, the nations living here in Israel would have peacefully surrendered the land of Israel. Ideally, peace is not achieved through war, but through the awe of divine exaltation, which a healthy Israel projects to the world. Israel aspires to perfect the world through peaceful means alone. However, when Israel falls from its high divine stature, war becomes necessary to bring the world to the knowledge of God and to universal peace. All the events in the world are intertwined and connected to the redemption of Israel, and when the sin of the golden calf is completely healed, the world will recognize that the Jews are the people eternally blessed by God, and the world will be perfected in a peaceful manner. Mirzashem, that should come one day. Doesn't look like it's coming tomorrow, but maybe it'll come sooner than later. Okay, don't worry about the Eitzadas for now. Okay, we are on cha chapter 5. Chapter 5. Now, this essay, Chapter 5, really only has two sentences, as you'll see shortly, but they're long sentences. And what Rav Cook is going to do over here is it, he's going to give an overview of world history. <laughs> How he does this all in a few sentences is fascinating. With early Christianity traveling through the Middle Ages the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Emancipation Eras in Europe, and reaching the devastating finale, which was World War I. <laughs> and he leads us into a very deep psychological exploration of the causes behind that awesome violence which erupted in Europe during World War I. And the obvious question that has to be asked is how can this have happened when we were in an enlightened, industrialized, and cultured Europe? The pinnacle of world civilization. How did they unleash such destructive, barbaric forces? That is what he wants to talk about. It was a world of philosophers, authors, musicians, artists, how could they put on uniforms and bayonets and get into the most brutal forms? Remember good old-fashioned mustard gas? Remember that one? It gets into your lungs, right? And it's a real great way of killing people, right? So it likes, looks like the Dark Ages came back. So this is what this chapter is about. I only wished... He would have lived longer, of yeah, course. Yeah. Keep thinking. We can only yet. try to imagine. We can't, you know, he, it was Nifter in 1935, almost 90 years ago. He saw at the beginning of Hitler. What? 33 was Hitler. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, so let us see. So that is what he is going to be explaining over here. Now, let's... Uh, now, again, we've had this once before, but he brings it again. Remember, in the 13th century, King Aragon 
the second invited the Ramban to debate with a Jewish priest, Pablo Christian and his friends, right? And uh, the king turns to the Ramban and says, why don't you think that the Messiah's already arrived? And the Ramban answered, I read in the prophets that when the Messiah comes, the nation will not lift a sword against nation. They will no longer learn war. And I saw that since Christianity broke out into the world, more blood has been shed than before and no more. How hard will it be for you, my Lord, the King, for you and your knights, if you learn no more war? So therefore, Rav Kook says something similar to the Ramban. How could it be that the Christian world brought this all on to us? Clear result of Christianity, World War One. Okay, so now this is what, remember, the bold is Rav Kook's words. The non-bold is Rav Shirky, who gives explanations. The English, any mistakes are my responsibility for that. Okay, so just, what? It's being recorded. It is, it is. It is being recorded. Just in case you're not sure it's being recorded, give a kick. <laughs> See, it's being recorded. China, thank you for asking, because if I wouldn't have recorded, a lot of people besides you would be very unhappy. We'd be okay. We'd you, that's it, besides you. Okay, so now he says that it's all laid on the doorstep of Christianity. So he says, Hakvisha Hamusaris, the moral oppression. Uh, and the commentary says, for example, Izeo Gibor Hakovesh Estitro, who's a strong person who controls his Yetzirah, meaning the moral overcoming that had to happen. Sha'alpi Hatarbus Hacholanis, based on the, you can call it, could be a, 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 a double uh, way. The secular culture, or cholanis, could be the sick culture. It's a play, could be a play on words, because Rav Shirky says tarbus shalchol. That means a culture, a mundane culture, but uh, it could very well be sick. But but mainly a secular culture. Secular would be amim that was ruling over the nations. Heiko alibam oppressed their hearts. And many bad midos, many ills and uh, uh, other bad midos, were accompanied, accumulated in the depths of their souls. What does this mean over here? Here it is. Here, we're, here's the big problem with Christianity from the beginning. Remember, who are the Christians trying to Convert, whatever you want to say, barbarians. The world was barbaric. You're talking about what? The year 200, 300. This is the height of the Roman Empire, which is the height of barbarism, right? Christianity told the barbarian peoples that they could immediately become moral and good, even though this is not true. Right? You can go to heaven. You go up, to, right? That is, Christianity told them. They could immediately change their bad behavior to moral standards when in truth they were very far from them. For example, when the Christians told the Romans that it was possible to live a life of compassion, kindness, and mercy, their deep inner desire was to murder, rob, rape, etc. In other words, it was a barbaric world. 
And they want, what did they really want? What did a goy want to do? You're strong. You beat up everybody. You control everybody. You rape everybody. That's what the world was in Rome. That's what it was. So the Christians came along and said, no, no, no. You could live a life of kindness. You can turn the other cheek. Now remember, they took they took certain parts of Judaism and they figured maybe this will be geschmack for the non-Jews. So what happened? So now they're saying this is the religion. This is what holy people say. So and the result was that in the beginning the Romans really didn't murder, plunder, and rape. They stopped. But the inner desire remained. And they had to find an outlet for it. And the outlet was the war. So you could be in the Roman Senate and we're senators and there's a Congress and there's laws and they have nice robes and all these things. Fine. Ah, but we have to go to war. War is hell. Yeah. Now anything, because war is not normal life. So every now and then their hearts compel them to fight and in these wars, everything was within the bounds of what was allowed for them. That is, the Europeans behaved completely barbarically in their wars because of the moral norms that Christianity instilled in them. In other words, Christianity is a repressive religion. So they're telling you to repress. Well, guess what? You can't. So they're holding it. It's like a spring. You hold it in, you hold it in, you hold it in. And then you're looking for a chance for it to explode in a permissible fashion. So that's where the wars come in to to let out all the libido, all the aggression, all those things, all in the name of civility. For example, in European countries before the first war, there was a great belief that the world was entering an era of peace. And there would never be any more wars. And even if there is a war, and if the means of destruction of times, it will not last more than a couple weeks. And those enlightened people in Europe found themselves fighting brutally before long. Comes back Rev Cook. So what was Rev Cook saying? It was a very repressive lifestyle. Okay, very repressive. So now, and now they came out of their quarries, right, by the many bloody and cruel wars. Which was more suitable for their really unrefined characters. What was more suited for them? To be barbarians. Okay, now if you read any of these um, documentaries about what life was, in uh, the Elizabethan era, or you want to like what life was in the South, the United States during slavery, there was a lot of, uh, what do you call it, in secret. A lot of disgusting things happened in secret. All kinds of immorality was going on, but shh, hush, hush, you don't talk about these things, right? And therefore, there was a lot of this and, and, and the, ch- uh, the church was saying, you know, you got to be good, you got to be this, you have to be moral, this and that. And it was like forced upon them, and you couldn't go against the rules. 
and therefore you had to find some escape mechanism. So either you did it under the radar, if you were powerful, you could do it under the radar, and if you weren't, you were looking for that opportunity of war. Now, if you look historically, there are always wars. What, right? Didn't they call it the Hundred Years' War between England and France? The, the War of the Road. There were lots of wars. But, you know, and they tried to have them in other places, whatever. So that was really good. It was a really a very noble thing to be a soldier. Why do you think they wanted to be soldiers? Because now I can be a behemoth. Do you understand? The church is telling us we have to be principled and moral. And yes, we're going to wear a nice uh, uh, uniform and this and, and manners and this and that. You're going nuts. Come on, let me kill a few people. Let me rape a few people. I need a good excuse. So they would volunteer for the army. And it was a great covet. And, but that was the collateral benefit because they could let the animal out of the cage. And that is, and now, so therefore, Rav Cook is suggesting, and really a lot of secular psychiatrists, Freud and others, talk about this as well, and say this is what made everybody so crazy. Yeah, question? Yeah, is this why Jewish, the Jewish people were easy targets? Because we didn't have that barbarian lifestyle, so we thought we'd be an easy Well, Jews are easy targets because we didn't have any homeland. And we didn't believe, first of all, we were restricted in so many things. We couldn't have any land. We couldn't, remember, we learned last year's classes. We couldn't own anything, and we didn't have any access to any kind of power. On top of the fact that, yes, we were moral people. Yes, but we didn't have access to any of that. And unfortunately, we became the victims to many of those things. Yeah? Who's saying today is any different? Who's saying it's any different? We're talking about the 1914. Who says anything's different? I, I agree with you. Nothing. But from Rav Cook's, we have to remember. We have to go back and understand the shock of World War I. It was a shock. Everybody was shocked by it. They didn't realize what it would become. Said, okay, it'll be a couple weeks, it'll be a war, but this is not fishing. And then it's just everybody, everybody let the animal out of the cage. When World War One happened, they said to the Brits, we'll be back before Christmas. Yeah. That's what they told them. They all listened, we'll be back before Christmas. Yeah. That's what they said. Yes. So, okay. So, so, so then the question is, so now, so Rav Shurki asks, the question arises, then do these nations have no hope? Yeah. So Rav Cook added two more words. After he said all the cruel things come out, Rav Cook adds two words. Adayin Ka'es, as of this time. As of this time, as of 1917, the animal's out of the cage. But there is hope that maybe man can change, right? Now, Rav Cook wrote it by then. You know, again, what would have happened had he seen World War II? But the point is, it hasn't changed. And that was your point, Leora. It hasn't changed. But was there any hope? Okay, now the question is asked. Now, this can be vast, I gotta, you know, date this, but this, this, now here's an interesting, yeah? Can I just want to ask a question for a second? Please, a little yeah, louder, I, I can't. I just want to ask a question for a second, because I'm just thinking about it. I thought it, like, if you take Christianity out of the picture. Yes, take Christianity out of the picture. And now what do you see? I almost feel More like it's worse. Like, don't they say, like, at least if the Goyim have something, if the Goyim are better, then it's better for, like, if they have some kind of moral 
barometer, it's still better for us that they have something better than they have nothing. Positive. If you take Christianity it, it, out, it which is what you're having right now, so now you have no morality, you have no nothing, like at least once a But it was life. just, Christianity was just, what do you call it? It was um, a, a, a destruction waiting to happen. It was a time bomb. It was a ticking time bomb. So the ticking time bomb went off. Let's say today now, that they're saying they're fighting all the judo Christian values. Like, you know, you see all these people. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. So now they're fighting all the judo Christian values. Who, who's fighting? The secular. The secular list. Like, if you look at, let's say, even your own Fox News, you'll see the people wearing crosses. Most of those women. But they're not they're fighting. fighting. No. They're saying they want to see that the judo Christian values still remain. And that we don't allow... And, and therefore, we should keep fighting in Russia. What does that have to do with the, the Well, kill people, kill people in... in uh, what do you, well, in, uh, in, what do you call it? What's that place Ukraine. called? Ukraine. 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 Well, look, let's look at the next paragraph. Maybe that will answer your question. The next paragraph. So if Shirky asks, the question rises, there have been no wars in Western Europe for decades. Since 1945, there really has been no war per se in Europe. Not in Europe. Elsewhere. Oh, 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 oh. So the answer is no. Because is this a really sign like of their different. moral development? In other words, he's asking, maybe they're better now. Since World War II, it's been pretty quiet in Europe. He says, no, because European nations decided that only the wars among themselves will be stopped. Yeah. Um, but conflicts in their mission would continue elsewhere. Probably. That is, the wars between the blocks and between those with interests are manifest in places that no one sees. For example, European weapons are circulating all over the world and making wars, specifically in Africa and in what do you call it? Guatemala and all those areas. Yes, Korean War, Vietnam, all these. And remember, remember in those days, no internet, very far away places. Nobody knew what's going on over there. When Walter Cronkite got on and talked about the Vietnam War, all of a sudden, that's when all the protests against the war started. Okay, fine, yes. Public. But the problem is they didn't really stop anything. They just were proxy wars. So right. they got to play war with other places. Yeah. And in Europe. And not Europe, and in Africa. Africa. It was yeah, terrible. What's going on over there? Still is. So it never really stopped. You don't hear about it. Still More it's than that. Better. It's implied from the rabbi's words that the positive development of humanity is hindered by Christianity. In other words, since a morality that was not natural to them was imposed on them against their will, they could not gradually develop themselves to the point of identifying with the moral values of Judaism. And Islam as well was imposed. Yes, right. yes. They like to kill. Now that really wasn't a big factor in World War One. So that's what Rabbi sure. isn't okay. talking about. Rabbi Shirky isn't talking about it. But it is no different. Really, and I don't, again, I don't think anybody knows what Islam is teaching. You know, I don't believe they ever taught anything about being kind. As much as they think they're saying that, but uh, they're, just they a, live it that way. they're just a bunch of barbarians. And let's be barbarians, okay? By the way, there is a nation in humanity that has truly and totally embraced the absence of violence. Yeah. The Tibetans! But you got the opposite problem. Because they're against violence, they were slaughtered. (laughs) And thus in their silence, they give a hand to evil. 
And the great absurdity is that the leader, the Dalai Lama, received a Nobel Peace Prize for allowing millions of his people to be slaughtered without comment. Do you understand? So someone said, no, we gotta really stop fighting war. Yeah, great, so we'll just kill all of you, okay? Hmm. Another thing, Ruff Cook's criticism of the morality imposed on the peoples of Europe is largely connected to Nietzsche's criticism of Christian morality in his book, Beyond Good and Evil. Nietzsche claims that Christian morality subdued the stature of man that has forced him to behave in a way that contradicts his cruel and barbaric nature. We'll have yeah, to see. Yeah, strongest we'll have to see. Anyway, yeah, this is where, you know, survival of the fittest, Darwinism. And what did that eventually, these were Germans, right? Where did that lead them to? Hitler, Aryan, Aryan youth. That's where it led them to, of course. That's how you have to do it. What was Hitler's famous line? They call us barbarians. It's an honor to be called barbarians. Exact quote, unquote. Because that's the logical, you're not supposed to control yourself. And the world will be better served if the strong destroy the weak. It is social Darwinism. Yeah. By the way, he's just misquoted because he actually talked about when he got rid of God, Okay, it didn't mean he was giving, doesn't mean he was a very religious guy. No, but he was correctly okay. diagnosed. It. Anyway, let's continue. Uh, where are we now? Oh, so the question now can be asked. It's all commentary. But the people of Israel also received the Torah at once. So why was there no difficulty for us like the nations? Why were we able to take it and they weren't? We were in Egypt. The world was barbaric. Okay. So the answer, the people of Israel, unlike the nations, have natural morals. As the sages say, all Jews are Baishonim, Rachmonim, and Gomle Chasod, which means we have the DNA of Avram Yitzhak yes, and Yaakov. developed by the patriarchs. There is no Goy in the world who has the DNA of Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. That's part of who we are. And that becomes part of the divine soul that's blown into each and every Jew. And therefore we have a Torah that is speaking to us that we can naturally live with this. Okay, we can live with this. The Goyim don't. Now the Goyim could have had it. Hashem offered it to them at Sinai. Hashem said, you want to have a different soul? Come and join us at Sinai. You'll have a, a Goyish soul that's spiritual enough that you'll be able to keep the seven Noahide laws naturally. That was the great offer, because many people asked the question, what was God offering? Why was he offering anything to the nine Jews? They weren't supposed to be at Sinai to get the Torah. And number two, when they asked, give us a sample, what were the samples that Hashem gave? He, he did not say Shabbos, Kashras, Taras HaMishpacha. He only said the seven Noahide laws. So what's the answer? The answer is, when Sinai happened, that was the, the revival of the world. And Hashem is saying, here's the point where now I want the world to be perfected. The Jewish people, as we'll see in a minute, have to keep 613 messages. You non-Jews, we'd like to give you a chance to be civilized. And as opposed to Christianity, we're going to only ask you to do seven things, but here's the critical but. You're doing it because Hashem said so? 
and Hashem will change your DNA too. Not to be like a Jewish DNA, but to be a Bnei Noach DNA. And if they would have accepted it, they would have been part of the Sinai revelation as well. And then their souls would have been able to handle those seven Noachite laws. They would not have to feel to be barbarians. That only God can do. When they refused that, then Halacha kind of said, at that point, they really don't deserve to have anything. Because you have this chance to be a civilized person, and they don't want to be a civilized person. That's the deeper saying. Yes, you had a question? No, I think it so, so the, yeah. the Torah was not offered to the nations? Only the seven it was, the seven Nochai laws. Only the seven Nochai, not, not the whole Torah. Was, uh, well, I, th- that, I, I thought that, the, Torah, the whole Torah was offered to all the nations. No. No, if you look at you look at what they offered them, what does it say? Can't kill, can't steal, can't be immorality. Why didn't Hashem say other things? Right, and the fact that they were asking already meant let's see if it suits us. So Hashem picked the ones that He knew wouldn't suit them. You follow? If it would have said, "Oh, that's easy," how can we make? Maybe we could have some more. Then God would say, "Okay, you want some more? I'll give you some more." But they didn't want. They didn't want even what they're supposed so to it's keep. It's possible that if they'd accepted the Noahide laws, they might have been given an opportunity for more. No history. Well, they would Who have knows? at least been. Then, then it would have been the Ace of Yaakov partnership. Right. Hashem always wanted an Ace of Yaakov partnership. That's what it should have been. Ace of didn't fulfill his part of the deal. So therefore, what happens now? His descendants and all the other non-Jews. Why didn't you take part of it? Hashem says you could be part of a great transformation of the world. They said we're not interested in it. So does that mean that because they rejected it at Sinai, they have no chance to be good Noahites? Well, right now, they don't, they'll have to, indiv- as nations, not. As, as nations individuals, yes. Because even though they don't, individual, they don't have national DNA, but they can individually become Noahites or Jews if they want to. If they want to, but it, it's going to be very hard for I them. I see people running to our doors to convert. <laughs> no, no, very I'm just saying there are converts, so they must have... Very few, come on, like very few. Of course. And, and, and... Some of them are amazing converts. Some of right. the converts we have are the most amazing people. And unfortunately, some of them are the real, like, they're not normal people also. Some right. of them. But I mean, even historically, could. like, what? There have been converts. But not a lot. I didn't say many. I'm just Okay, but, so okay. They, they can, don't have the DNA. You can, Okay, so you can convert. But it's rare. It's a rare person that can do that. But, but the world decided at Sinai to be uncivilized. So we do not want to be civilized. Finished. So we have to wait till Mashiach. Yes, the question arises. The Gemara Brachas says that King David started a war for economic reasons. It's based on Gemara Brachas. Don't know if he'd get up early every morning, he'd have a meeting with his cabinet ministers. Cabinet ministers say, uh, King David, your, ma- your majesty, we have trouble with the economy. They always talked about the economy. And he says, okay, why don't you try to make partners with each other? We can't. The economy's really bad. Why don't you try this? We can't. can't. So then what does he say? I guess we have to go to war. We have to go to war. So now the question is, it seems that we are imperialists. Okay. And isn't that a terrible thing? So this is the question. He started wars for economic reasons. How can you do this? The answer is, and this answer is also true to the question of the morality of mitzvah wars, the property in the world, all the resources of the world, exists for the well-being of humans. And if there's a situation where there are people who have nothing to live on, well, a certain person or a nation has a lot of property, and they're not giving, 
then in a certain sense, he's killing them. Now, let me explain this. I have to explain this. It's not like David HaMelech didn't send an ambassador and says, we'd like to trade with you. Guess what? This BDS started long ago. <laughs> Do you understand? It's no kiddish with BDS. When King David was the king, they said, we're not going to trade with him. Why should, we don't want to give him anything. King David says, why don't you trade with us? We can have good economic harmony. Oh, we hate your cuts. So you have assets on planet Earth that you don't want to share with people. We're not talking about stealing. You know, we'll, we'll do trade with you. We'll come. No, we hate you. We want you to die. So, you know, you have no permission to do that. Last week, the one said that uh, they tortured us and killed us. They, they owe us. Right? That's what King David said, right? Oh, that's other things they did. But at least here, it was respectful. Okay, the property in the world exists for the well-being of humans. And if there's situations where there are people who have nothing to live on, well, a certain person has a lot of property, then he's killing them. And therefore, they have the right to have them taken away. His property. Therefore, a danger to the public justifies war. But even then, they wouldn't go until they asked the Urim Vitum, until they asked Hashem for permission. If there's no permission, you don't go then either. Despite all this, there's no admiration for war in Judaism. The atrocities we do in war are not done because they correspond to some inner desire within us to kill and murder people, but because we know there is no choice but to do them. That is, war is a bad thing. And since we live in a world of wars, the definition of mitzvah war was created. Okay. And by the way, in order to find societies for whom war is a noble thing, you don't have to wander all the way to Europe. Okay, that's another thing. Anyway. Now the next question is, that's a lot of great questions, this Rabbi Shirky. He says, what would Rabbi Cook say about the Rambam statement? The Rambam wrote this, that Christianity actually advanced the world. There's a benefit to Christianity, right? So the answer is, it advanced the world in the realm of faith, but not in morality. In other words, what he means to say is, they talk, there is, there's a Messiah. The world talks about a Messiah. Okay, that's faith, not morality. Morality didn't teach the world, but faith that there is a Messiah, there is a world to come. You know, for the non-Jews to hear that, that it's on the radar screen. You have to remember, the day will come one day that Eliyahu Novi or the Mashiach is going to come and talk about Mashiach. Now, if we had no Christianity, then the world would not know anything about a Messiah. So therefore, it'll be like way too foreign for them. But now the whole world knows there's a Messiah. And you have a lot of Christians waiting for a Messiah. So we just say, he's here. Just a wee little change in it, guys. Right? He's one of us. It's the first time, not the second time. Right. Now, next question. The question arises, if the nations are barbarians, then how were they so easily convinced to accept the moral values? Answer the Gemara says that the Gentiles are better work close to tshuva. What does that mean? The morale explains Gentiles are close to tshuva while it's difficult for the people of Israel to repent because they're stupid. What does this mean to say? What does this mean to say? I'm going to explain it to you. Game rache levav. It means soft hearted, but Rav Shirky writes tipshim. Stupid. 
Now, what does this mean? This is the whole reason why Yonah did not want to go to Ninveh. Why didn't Jews are very, one thing about Jews, we're honest and we're smart. So now, when God says you have to do tshuva, a Jew says, what does tshuva really mean? They know what tshuva really means. Tshuva means you got to really make a thorough overhaul of your true personality. you got to change your meals. you got to do all those things. And a Jew knows if you do anything less than that, that's not tshuva. And therefore, Jews say, it's too hard for me. They say, I know, I know I'm wrong, I know I should do tshuva, but we're, I'm honest, this is not for me. And, that, and during Yonah's time, the Jews understood the Navi saying. They understood it. It's, it's very hard. Okay? And we have a good, strong army. So now when Hashem goes to say, go to Ninveh, he says, the Goy, very simple. You put a stick over there, they'll be better. He said, we're going to be better. What does that mean? We'll be better for a few weeks, a few months, of course. But then later, you know, it'll just go back to the way it was. Right. So therefore, and they will do tshuva, but it's not going to be long term, and therefore it will look bad upon the Jews. How come the goyim can do tshuva and the Jews aren't doing tshuva? The answer is it's only temporarily; it's not permanent. But even in Christianity, all they have to do is accept. That's right. So they're doing tshuva every week. Yeah. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Yeah. And then okay, tell me what you did. Oh, okay, got a really good rated X movie over here. Okay, okay, the priest won't Satan, tell you, whatever won't, they won't are, share it with anyone, <laughs> right? Okay, but then they go around and do the thing right after us. So they're easy, that's why it's stupid. Stupid means they're not really doing tshuva. But they're stupid, not the Jews. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, they're, they're, so, the goyim, the goyim are soft heart. they're stupid. In other words, with them, the admiration for the demagogic influence oh, okay. of the spiritual man is great. While with us, everything, including spiritual, requires mental proof. And so you got to really understand it. Goy says, okay, you want me to, to be, okay, I'll stop. Fine, good, I'll say what you want me to say. But they don't mean what they're going to say. Okay, one more thing. The idea of the first Christians who were Jews was that it was necessary to send a kind of rabbis to the Gentiles. Okay, not really rabbis, they're going to be priests, whatever they are, but uh, holy people, that they could change them. They believed, the early Christians, Yashka, these people, we can go to the Goyim and we could change them. That was a mistake. Because they had to be changed in a different way. A more appropriate way that would have succeeded in instilling the moral values in the nations as they should. In other words, they just go and say, this is the new word of God. Repent, sinners, for ye are evil. You will burn in hell. You will this and that. They scared them, and they were good talkers. And they say, you have to follow the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is this, and they were just scaring them. And people were very uh, stupid, and they believed this. But they weren't ready for any of this. So again, it was forced upon them. And if it had just a good, good fire and brimstone, will get them to change, maybe temporarily. Okay, now, but really, it should have been done in another way. It would succeed in another way. The Jews would live next door to Gentiles, and that's how the projection would have happened anyway. In other words, if the non-Jew sees how good the Jew is, then there's a chance for change to happen. That's the only, we can never force this upon the non-Jews in the world. 
The real change of the non-Jews will happen when Jews who are out in society and are a living Kiddush Hashem to the non-Jews. That's when that will happen. Let, just get one minute. Let me finish the next thing. They'll take all your questions. And he gives an example of this. Very interesting historical names. In Persia, 2,500 years ago, a man named Zarathustra, the Zoroastrians, you know, yeah, whatever, the Zoroastrians, whatever, yeah. changed the whole religious life of the Persian peoples. He abolished the ancient idolatry and brought a new but more refined idolatry. He explained that the whole world is a result of a struggle between two gods, the good god and the bad god. And this is the first time in the history of the nations that base their religious life on a moral basis, good and bad. All this happened because exactly at that time, the nation of Israel were there in the exile. Wow, winky winky. And by the way, the same time when the story of the book of Esther took place, what does it say in the Megillah? It says, and many of the peoples of the land are turning to Judaism. The meaning of especially Jews means make themselves Jews. That means it's something of an influence of Judaism permeated the Persians without the Jews taking the initiative. And that rabbi, Zorostian, came to them, who doesn't really know the true nature, and imposed on them that behavior that would suit him and not them. So you saw a little bit of that to a certain degree. Okay, now we got another interesting question that he asks. He says, if the ideal situation is that the Gentiles from among our neighbors will come to Judaism of their own accord and gradually take from it the foundations that are suitable for them, so why can't the Jew himself choose like them the elements that are suitable for him? In other words, why do I have to be such a from Jew? Let me take the things that are nice for me. Why can't we go to our secular Jew and just, you know, just get a couple moral things from them? The answer is the Jew must fulfill all the mitzvahs. And he does this not only for himself, but for all of humanity. That is, it is good for humanity of a nation in which the entire set of values are preserved. And therefore, it's a great burden for the Jew to carry. An example is that is you have a country that's very important to have an army to protect it. And therefore, there's no choice, and private soldiers must bear the burden for everyone. In other words, you have to have people who are the, the, the best that are there. You have to have the, the people who God meant to create the world for. And they have to live on a divine level. If we don't have any people living on a divine level, then why did God create the world for? He didn't just create the world for a bunch of non-Jews to do a couple mitzvahs. Remember, he created the world for people to emulate God, to get the greatest pleasure of that, and that has to only happen through the rigors of 613 mitzvahs. And not everybody's meant, Hashem never meant that everybody has to do all this. We have to have one people who will get it all and be very close to Hashem and the purpose of the world be created. What about everybody else? They'll be their helpers. They'll assist them. And that gives meaning and purpose to the rest of the world. And therefore, all the non-Jews can be part of this glorious world. And the non-Jews should feel privileged. We have Jews. Their only mission is to be close to God and to bring blessing into the world. And they, mamish, have to do tons of things. That's the royalty. But the, but the real 
royalty, the real noblesse oblige, the real one, the real pshat noblesse oblige, which is that the that the nobles have an obligation to make the world a better place. Sounds good, but only Judaism can really attest that that's possible. So the Jew has that, and now there's a purpose to the whole world. The rest of the world can learn from Jews, okay, so we'll do our, our, our seven Noahide laws, and it should rub off on them. Okay, do you have any questions? Yeah, because Jews are not supposed to mix with Goyim. So like this idea not to mix with Goyim? We don't mix with Goyim. They're our servants, they deal with us in business. We don't have to mix with them, but we can deal with them. There's nothing wrong with dealing with them in business. There's nothing wrong with having a Filipino nanny, okay? But there are clear social lines that are drawn. There's no problem. That's always a, a difficult situation. Like, how do you draw the line? You have to ask halacha that tells you how to draw the line. No such thing as yichud with a non-Jew. There's a lot of laws that are there and a lot of ways that that can happen. And there's ways that you can get the non-Jewish world to be impressed by everything that we are doing. So it really comes out that uh, that the, the really Judaism is the only path that can give a person true joy. That's what they can give. And um, Christianity really was just a replacement of idolatry. That's really all it was. Uh, when you look at Rambam's uncensored writings, he's, he says that Christianity was idol worship, and he wrote that its founder brought the majority of the world to err and to serve a god rather than a Hashem. And by them abandoning the mitzvahs, so it got really the world into just another form of idol worship. While they were imitating certain Jewish values and beliefs, but they took people away from the true service of Hashem. So for example, one of the big lines is when Christianity came to, to Rome, it says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give unto God what is God's. What was that the beginnings of? Church and state. Yes, separation of church and state. You don't have to wait for the America. It started earlier. So what does that mean? That means you got God, but that's another place. And then you got the real world. So you're really abandoning the world to anarchy, right? And you're divorcing the governments from a concept of a life with God. And you're really saying we have to surrender to the physical life. So what Christianity did was to remove Kedusha from life. And God was relegated to the distant heavens. And the wicked people were condemned to a certain sinful earthly existence in other words they said there's a dichotomy between the spirit at the soul and the body there's a conflict it cannot be resolved and therefore either you're a spiritual person or you're not a spiritual person okay and again let's look at a few major difference that christianity had with yiddishkeit okay so one of them was that uh, the basic tenets of Christianity is that more man is born out of sin and man is damned at birth and needs a purging to escape the fires of hell. And there's powerful life forces that you have, libidos and all things that, that is evil which must be suppressed. 
This is a world of temptations and passions. It's to be rejected for the promise of salvation in the next world. So that was the doctrine. If you if you're you're a behavior, because they knew they were barbarians. So how are they gonna get to the barbarians? You're going to hell. Okay? So so but according to Judaism, life is a blessing. The soul is pure. We say this every day. It's not blemished. Yes, sin crouches at the door, but man has the power to overcome it, right? And if you're taking us a Hasidic approach, there's a whole idea of simcha with all this, okay? Another example, if the world is so physically terrible, then what's another thing? The relationship between man and woman. In Christianity, is an embarrassment. It's giving in to the lusts of the world. Yeah, Deep-seated guilt. That's why the priests don't get married. That's right. And that's the holy people. Right? And that's why there was an immaculate deception. Right? Which symbolizes the rejection of intimacy. So now what are they telling you? One of your most basic drives, you're a schmo for having that basic drive. So you have to put it into the closet. And all kinds of guilt comes after that. Well, in Judaism, the very first commandment is to be fruitful and multiplying. And the Torah says that intimacy has a right context with right person, place, and time. It's a beautiful thing. Now, once you see this major difference, now what's going to be the outgrowth of Christianity is going to be atheism and the secular uh, culture that it breeds. Because, because inside, you already feel estranged from God and Christianity. You already know you're not going to be close. I'm a human being, and I'm a bum, and God hates me. And I'm my only salvation is through the priest, right? So you can understand when modern civilization comes along, they say, listen, God isn't close to you anyway, so just get rid of God. Get rid of that prism. And that was the famous line of Nietzsche, that God is dead. A man is meant to create a whole new world. And now, you know, your passions are to be understood and to be to be accepted, and it's normal and it's amazing. So, and then they had this whole thing of culture, became their new idol. So, therefore, this is the the thing that World War I now became a war of civilized nations. As enlightened as they were. Nothing really ever changed, okay? And eventually, who gets blamed for all this? The Jews get blamed for this because, remember, they threw off the church, but the church really got everything from us, and therefore they're very upset with us, obviously. All right, so that ends chapter 5. We can move on. Any questions? Oh, the 15 minutes. Okay, so let's move on to chapter Non-Jews, non-Jews are blaming the Jews for religion. For religion, but not. Yes, go ahead. Right, and we suffer from that. Yes, we one hundred percent suffer. From yes. That. So, is there a point here that we missed our mission? Like, let's say all these sophisticated realities that were going on in Europe and all this. That's what I was trying to tell you. How could the Jews be a light unto these people if we're not? 
Like, in other words, like, if you look today, or it was how many years ago when the Lubavitcher Rebbe came out, with we should be going around, and he had cards with the Noahide laws on I don't know, 50 years ago, yeah. 60. Yeah, maybe whatever. So whatever. I'm saying, is there a fault to us? But I'm trying to find out, because how do you expect a world really to be impacted? Well, this is Gullus. This is Gullus. Gullus is not the regular world. This, that is a, you have to understand, there's a lot of different ways to view the goals. One of the views of viewing the goals is we have to hang on, just get done what we got to get done, and then we got to wait for Hashem who's going to make some amazing changes and be ready for those amazing changes. So it's not really we good. are in goals. We're not in charge. We had a chance. We blew it. God has a special avoda for us to do in goals, and it's not yet ready to be the real light onto the nations the way we're truly meant to be. But we have to hang on. We have to hang on and, and grow in whatever way we're supposed to grow, pick up holy sparks from place to pick up holy sparks. And certainly we, as non-Jews, we have to live our proper lives and, and yearn for Mashiach. There's a lot of things you could do in Golos. And yearning for Mashiach is a big thing. Okay? And our behavior. God will create situations. Let's put it this way. After the first base on Mikdash was destroyed, how did we get back to the second base? Were Jews responsible for that? No. no. It was Cyrus. He had one Navi who was sad. Right? And Cyrus says, why are you so sad? I can't go back to my temple. Oh, I'll help you. What did the Jews do? Nothing. And then when Sarah says, okay, any Jew wants to come back, I'm paying for everything. It's better than Nefesh Benefesh. Nefesh is just helpful, but they're not going to pay all your bills. The king said, I'm paying all your bills. So how many came? A few. Okay, so. You know, but I heard something, I just read something recently that said that we have, like, why didn't so many people go back from Babel? Because there is an issue that if you're learning Torah better and you're more connected and you have more that you don't have to go back that's okay there's another opinion on that but but the point being but the point is still but how did they rebuild the basement it wasn't their own ability it wasn't their own ability so how do you think Mashiach's going to come and that's the big discussion so Rav Kook is saying we have to want Mashiach no question about it and Rav Kook is saying let events take the course. Like, like what's it Balfour Declaration. Where really, the Jews had very little to do with it. I mean, they, they lobbied for it, but didn't have any power, per se. Okay, Rav Cook lobbied for it. Because we all, we want to come back. But we can't, like, push it too, too hard because the world still is part of the puzzle. So what, what do you see? He's saying, listen, Hashem, when he wants to advance things, so he's making a world war and he's advancing things. There are Jews who want to go to Israel, but we're not just going to get up en masse and make a revolution against the British and just conquer the land of Israel. Can't do that. That's not practical. You can want, you can daven for it, you can lobby for it. And then what happens? Look, out of nowhere. The world says, would you like a country? We feel really bad for you. Now, that, it's a miracle. That's a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And where did that come from? The result of the two wars. Hashem is doing these things. So now he's giving us an opportunity. But how much could we really do on our own? So it's like, now, if the world, the Jews were from, 
they would have taken much better opportunity of what was presented to them. Since they didn't, this is what causes all the problems here. But it really, it should be, quote unquote, easier to accomplish, and we make it, unfortunately, difficult to accomplish. But what Cook is clear saying, you have to want it, you have to work for it, you have to fight for it when you can fight for it, and that will be, that's how it will happen. Now, others may say, but okay, so you have Lubavitcher says, let's get them all to do the, 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 the Noahide laws. Okay, it's a nice thing to do. I don't know if it's going to bring the Mashiach, per se. You know what's going to bring the Mashiach? People wanting the Mashiach. And regardless if the non-Jews want it or not, it really depends on us. You know, it's nice you want to let the non-Jews be decent people. It's a very nice thing. But you want to work on Jews first. They're decent, we can be better Jews. Is it not delusional because every secular Jew goes out there and tries to, every time, rinse and repeat, goes and shows them the evidence, (laughs) be moral, be whatever. I mean, even Jordan Peterson is trying to do this. But if the whole system is a freaking failure, then it's just going to perpetrate the whole damn thing over again. There are going to be more barbarians when they end up blowing their top. Pogrom, Holocaust, pogrom, Holocaust. Yeah. It, it's like Okay, so what are you saying? What, what are we what are we supposed to do? It's like I All we know. have to do is what God told us to do. Yes. First of all, stop watching social media. <laughs> <laughs> Just do what you gotta do. Learn Torah, do chesed. That's what we said. Do chesed, learn Torah, take the opportunities that are given to you, and and, and go to Eretz Yisrael if you can. And let Hashem, let Hashem worry about the big stuff. We got to worry about the small stuff, so to speak. And and let Hashem take care of the rest. It really is, it's very simple because there's no way we can make this happen. Whenever anything positive to get us closer to Israel, it had nothing to do with us. You have to keep remembering that. Bell for decoration, nothing to do with us. It all has to do with your need. You know, and... Uh, Eretz Yisrael, nothing to do with us. How did we get it? You know why? Because we got murdered. Be honest. I mean, six million died. The world felt sorry for us. They felt sorry for us. There was a certain guilt or whatever. Hashem put it in their mind. But what was the Teva away? The moral countries, first of all, the UN in those days was mostly moral countries. Yeah, all these cuckoo nations, these Muslim nations, were, they were like 48 nations then. Okay, so you didn't need that many. And a lot of them just felt guilty. They didn't do anything to help the Jews. So they said, okay, just give them a piece of land. Listen, they weren't such tzaddikim. They said, give them a piece of land and the Arabs will kill them. And now we have a clear conscience. That was for sure their idea. Now we can really get rid of them. We'll give them their own land, let them go there, and, and we'll just turn a blind eye. So don't think they were so nice to us. And then we're going to be Holocaust number two. What do you want? We did exactly what you guys wanted. You wanted a land. We gave you the land. And they're all hoping to themselves, let's hope the Arabs killed them all. What a big disappointment. Hashem, then all of a sudden, Hashem does miracles beyond belief. And all Hashem really was asking from the Tzahal was, just thank me for it. That's all. I don't want to just thank me for it. And then we see what happens. So then it's a problem. But it's, let's not complicate Mashiach. It's very easy 
idea. Just be the best Jew you can be. Try to help other Jews be the best Jews they can be. And that's all you can do. And let Hashem worry about everything else. Hashem is moving the pieces without you having to work very hard. He's moving so many pieces. You know things are happening. COVID, who could predict COVID? It was not on anybody's radar. You see the whole world went upside down with COVID? And more social media got involved and more of this got involved. All this is happening. No one planned on this. Anyone planning October 7th besides Hamas? Nobody else was planning for it. And Hashem always seems to make something else happen that will bring us another step closer to Mashiach. But to realize, this Rav Kuk is saying that war is a very integral part of that messianic process, not to be rejected. Okay, let's just try again just a little bit more just to get a running start into but chapter. We're not, Rabbi, we're not saying that each one of our little things doesn't help Hashem push things along. Yes. Everything helps. Animami, but you have to believe in Mashiach. Again, if all Jews just wanted Mashiach to come, he'd be here. Right. Do you understand how simple it would be? How? Let Hashem figure right. it out. He can figure it out. He can make Trump get reelected. He can do a lot of things. Remember, it was Koresh. you got to remember, there's going to be some non-Jew. You're going to need some power. The Jews don't have enough power to make it happen. So Hashem will find a shliach somehow, whatever it's going to be, to have some power to come and make that happen. So that's all. We all want Mashiach. We all want to have Eretz Yisrael. We're all crying that look what's going on in Eretz Yisrael. And if we really wanted this to happen, Hashem would make this happen. So we do this by learning and three times just, a day, just like do our stuff. Yeah, just just do what you're crying out to Hashem. So if, if you're a big tzaddik, you keep tikkun chatzois. To really realize Hashem's mom is feeling terrible. For us to come, that's all it is. So it's hard, it's hard. And therefore, the default position is we don't do it. So then Hashem has to remind us. And the reminders are not so pleasant. Not so pleasant. But it's good. It's good that the reminders. One thing is for sure, nobody in their mind doubts how much the non-Jewish world really hates us. Really hates us. And even those who like us, only for other reasons. So when you really understand that, then you say, well, there's got to be something else over here. And then perhaps maybe Hashem gets back into the picture. Right? Not giving Hashem a lot of choice over here. Okay, so let's go on to Israel and the nations over another short chapters. And he's going to, uh, Rufus is going to explain two interrelated concepts. He's going to say, unbelievably to believe or not, but you're going to learn that war has a positive influence on the development of nations eventually have a positive influence. And number two, we discover that this world, the progress, it happens, the positive progress affects the Jews, as we will see. And <clears throat> let's see the first uh, line or so. He says, All nations are developing. And it comes to fruition through natural movement. In other words, countries develop naturally. The United States, it developed naturally. There was a lot of farmers, 
and then they become an industrial revolution, and then they built the railroad system, and then there's manifest destiny, and all these amazing things. Uh, it comes through soil, climate conditions, health conditions. Nations just develop. They have to adapt to certain things. You discover oil. Oil runs gas um, locomotives. Nations develop. Okay, that's normal. Every nation develops. Inventions. Hamilchamos mamikos Wars deepen the value of each nation. Yes, well, you'll see, until its form stands out and comes to fruition with the perfection of all details in the depths of all these things. In other words, yes, it consolidates a national identity for countries of the world. In other words, what do you believe in that you're fighting for? Okay? And that gets them to believe in what democracy and all those things are about. Let's just see this footnote over here. What I got? Come on. Where are you? Where is it going? <laughs> Hello? No, but that's supposed to point to that little, little gold I'm line. going the wrong way. Sorry. No. Click on, maybe click on the footnote. Let's try it again. I'm sorry. There it is. Yeah, so every nation has wars that it remembers and is educated about, all right? Wars force them to develop all kinds of things. Very simple example. Do you think without World War II, we may never have learned about nuclear energy? But this is a very scary thing. Right? But, but it really can be a tremendous thing. Nuclear energy, per se, is the solution to the uh, energy crisis. No question. And that came from war. Right? Now he says a very fascinating idea. We'll just say this idea and then we'll close it with this and see where this is taking us. This is an amazing... But what happened, nations are meant to develop. And war can bring out the most development in people. And again, as we said, after World War I, they want to have the League of Nations. It was a good idea. After World War II, the UN was a good idea. Okay? And things develop. Um, Europe, uh, Germany got destroyed. America builds it up for them. You know, there's certainly Europe they had to learn certain technologies, things like that, and ultimately things improve because when you're pushed against the wall, you have to really bring out the best. Okay, America really came up with the great ideas of democracy. This all came from values that they would fight for, and that was a very important. That shaped what America instead of colonists. They became Americans, and they and they really, you know, had a certain decent morality at that point, and it came all out from what they were willing to fight for, right? Now he says a very very unusual line. He says Yisrael who has the Jewish people are the mirror of the world. What does that mean? We'll explain. Ain dover kazeh zahut Yehudis. There's no such thing as Jewish identity. Jews are just mirrors that mirror the non-Jewish identities. What does this mean? 
So he says a very intriguing novel pshat when we make the bochar, asher bochar bonu mikol amim. Simple pshat is Hashem chose us from all the other nations to be totally different than everybody else. He has a, that's true, but he adds a slant. He says, mikol am hakadosh baruch hu bochar mashu. From every nation, Hashem chose a really good point from every nation. And that's what the Jewish people had. Right? If, if if Germans are on time, then there could be Jews who are on time. Right. Okay? If they're French who can be passionate about things, Jews can be passionate. Yeah. Whereas the Jewish people, every Jew, a Jew is a little bit of everything in the world. All the, all the uh, elements of the world are in a Jew, but not that. Even the higher realms, the malachim, all this is in Jews. And the best of non-Jews is in the world. So Jews have to have this. So we're meant to mirror that. Yeah? Just the good elements or both good and bad? Well, obviously bad. We're meant to only uh, reflect the good. We're going to skip to your point in a minute. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's true. Like in other words, here's the point. Oh, let me just see a little further. He says, the question arises, does it follow that the people of Israel do not have an original identity of their own? The answer is yes, <laughs> they don't. Hashem writes in the Torah, when the Most High gave nations their lot, when he separated the sons of man, he set up the boundaries of peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. The nation of the world paralleled the children of Israel. Seventy nations, seventy souls came down from Egypt. And then we said, because the Lord's portion is his people, Yaakov, the lot of his inheritance, we include within ourselves the ambition of unifying all national identities. This aspiration is stored within us and comes to full fruition throughout history. Okay, so what is going on over here? Let's explain. We know there are 70 nations in the world, yeah? Don't you have a question on that? That was the Tower of Babel. Forget about Tower of Babel. What's the question? Well, there are more than 70, but... Well, 70 root nations. Yeah. 70 root nations. Why did there have to be so many? Well, seven, well what is the difference? Are you saying I want to ask you a question. In the 70, are the Jews one of them? No. 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 So what's the obvious question? There's 71 nations. Well, who's 71? Jews. So we're not a nation. Oh! So the point is, we're not a nation. What does that mean, we're not a nation? It means like this. Let's say the Frenchman, whatever, has certain French DNA, we'll just say. They like wine, they're passionate, romantic, whatever, whatever a French human being is. German has an altogether different nature. British, different nature. Yes. Right? Russian, different nature. Whatever the 70 root are. The Jews, Tabla Rosa. What does that mean? We are in the image of Hashem. What does that really mean? A little, little Hasidus over here. In other words, we are meant, what's the image of Hashem? We are the Kli, we're the vessel. Now, what's supposed to happen? Hashem's divinity is meant to pour into us. Now, it can only pour into a utensil that's empty. So we don't have any dimensions yet. It's we are the mirror. The mirror doesn't have any dimensions, but has the quality to reflect what it lines up with. And Hashem created us, and all the writings say we're Hashem's twin, we're Hashem's lover, we're Hashem's children, 
What does that really mean? We are programmed to reflect HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the world. Now, if you put a person, if you put anything in front of the mirror, it can't reflect. So the Jew is meant to have nothing of his own so that he can reflect all of divinity and that's what he displays. Because at the end of the day, we really don't have anything of our own. And therefore, we're meant to reflect HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, there's a little bit of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in all the 70 nations. So we're supposed to interact with them to reflect the good parts of the 70 nations. And therefore, the success of the world is part of our success. Because there's a part of them that has a divine aspect that's supposed to be brought out into the world. And we're supposed to mirror that divine spark of the non-Jewish world as well. And now, obviously, what is the tool to make our mirror work properly? The Torah. The Torah is just like a mirror, really, it's a piece of copper. And you have to polish, it. polish, 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 till the mirror comes out. That's who we are. The Torah polishes us. We got all these meadows and all these things, but it's all to reflect on, and we're supposed to reflect that out. So we're not a unique nation. We, we are a nothing, so to speak, that is capable truly of reflecting everything about Hashem in this world and everything that Hashem created in the most beautiful way. That is, And therefore, we have to have a lot of connection with Hashem and to be rooted in that mirroring Hashem and then to mirror what the secular world has of divinity of their holy sparks to mirror as well. So therefore, when the non-Jewish world becomes better, we can become better in those holy ways. The simplest example of this is where did Torah anytime come from? Came from the internet. Where did that come from? A nice Jewish company? No. It came from the non-Jewish world. Now, of course, non-Jewish world has used the internet for the most disgusting and repulsive things in the world, but look how much Torah comes from that. We're reflecting the beautiful part, the godly part of the internet. There is a godly part of it. I'm not giving you a wholesale rights to go do everything on the internet, but could we spread Torah like this without having any connection to the non-Jewish world? No. So now we've taken a good part of the non-Jewish world and we've done this. Okay, how are you able to go to shul? You got a car. The non-Jewish world created cars. There's good parts to all of the world but and we're meant to reflect that, not socialize with it, not embrace it as our religion. They understand that's a part of God that enables us to reflect Hashem even better. We reflect Hashem by teaching Torah. So, okay, I'm teaching 20 people over here. That's very nice. Put me on Torah anytime, and it's 250 people. That couldn't happen otherwise. So, therefore, we got to appreciate we have a certain interdependence with the non-Jewish world, but we have to definitely know where to draw the line. That is a critical point. Yeah, Paul? Didn't we say earlier that Jews have three specific attributes? You can tell they're Jews because they have these three. Oh, that's so why is that's that moral not attributes, but it's not. But we're still meant to reflect. But we're saying we have nothing. We're blank. We're not blank. We come with that. Well, if you really look at those three, that enables you to reflect. Okay. If you're not arrogant, 
right? Right. I shun him, right? Oh, makes us receptive. Makes us very good receivers, uh-huh. right? Rachmanim, Baishanim. We have compassion. That's an attribute to, to worry about the other person. That means I'm reflecting. The other person's in pain. I'm in pain. Right. Where does compassion come from? Where does compassion come from? This person's suffering. I'm reflecting that suffering. Oh, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm humble because I know I don't have anything. Mm-hmm. If I'm not worried what I have, I don't have anything. And therefore, as, as a divine being, I'm a reflecting divinity. And more than that, those are the three most outstanding qualities of Hashem. So we're reflecting those qualities of Hashem. Now when Hashem gives us those qualities, we reflect it. He can give us a Torah that can be so easily kept by us. Okay. So is this a reason why we've been dispersed amongst Oh, Jews? look at the footnote now. This is one of the reasons that there are Jews all over the world. Because if you want to discover, then discover to the whole world. That's why in Israel, there's no such thing as an Israeli. First generation. I mean, Asab. What do you mean to say? Asab, really, because Israel was a country that all came from out of Israel. That's how it started. Right? Like Mamish, nothing. So what does that mean? That means, really, Jew Israel is just the whole world in Israel. And we're mirroring the best part, the Jewish part of that world. So you got really, whatever good stuff, France, England, all those people, they all have some good things. And you put them all in together, and you have advances in technology, all that the farms grow. You know, in Denmark, they're really good at making farms. Really good at it. Jews, Jews don't have green thumbs. So bring them from Denmark. And let's start having green thumbs in Israel. All these things. They're not scientists. So let's bring some people from uh, Southern California. And, Russia. Put them, and Russia and all these things. And we're taking... Israel is the whole world. It's the best of the whole world. And working together. And look what they're able to do. Okay, we got to stop it here. Good. Yeah. That was a good note to stop it. Last question. <laughs> Yes, we are, please. Because I have a 